Standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer Health and Missions. Hello, everyone. My name is Mike Casey with Pioneer Health and Missions, and it's a pleasure to have you here with us today. The title of today's presentation is Jeremiah 29, Does History Repeat Itself? In this presentation, we are going to be taking a look at Adventist history and an interesting parallel with Jeremiah 29. We'll also be looking at some other interesting parallels within the Bible as well. Our opening scripture today is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, and it reads, the thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. For those who can, may we please kneel for a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we ask for your presence today, dear Lord. Dear Lord, please give us understanding and draw us closer to you. And may the words that I speak be the words that you would have me to say. And dear Lord, please guide my thoughts in a direction that you would have me to go. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Jeremiah 29, Does History Repeat Itself? To get things started, let's go right to the spirit of prophecy and let's see what Ellen White says on history repeating itself. And she says, The experience of the past will be repeated. In the future, Satan's superstitions will assume new forms. Errors will be presented in a pleasing and flattering manner. False theories clothed with garments of light will be presented to God's people. Thus, Satan will try to deceive, if possible, the very elect. Most seducing influences will be exerted. Minds will be hypnotized. Wow, that last line is a little frightening, isn't it? Minds will be hypnotized. Often when we read Ellen White, we think, oh, she can't be speaking to me. She must be speaking to that group over there. But is it possible that the experiences of the past have been repeated? Heirs have come in and minds have been hypnotized, including our own. As we move forward through this presentation, I think we're going to see that this might very well be. We're going to go to Uriah Smith now, and we're going to see what Uriah Smith says about the Babylon which Avatism came out from under, as Babylon plays an important role, role in this presentation. And Uriah Smith says, The great city Babylon is spoken of as comprised of three divisions, so the great religions of the world may be arranged under three heads. The first, oldest, and most widespread is paganism, separately symbolized under the form of a dragon. The second is the great Romish apostasy, symbolized by the beast. And the third is the daughters or descendants from that church. Under this head comes the two-horned beast, though that does not embrace it all. So what's taking place here? We see two beasts, the first of which is represented by Catholicism, and the second, her daughters, is Protestantism. So the two-horned beast represents Protestantism, or more specifically, though not mentioned here, Protestant America. And let's continue reading and hear what else Uriah Smith has to say. And he says, The maintenance of very many heirs of the old Romish church identified with sad and faithful accuracy the great body of the Protestant churches as an important constituent part of this great Babylon. So we see Protestantism is as much part of Babylon as Catholicism. But why is that? What do they have in common? Well, errors and traditions they have in common. And what's the number one error? The Trinity. They have the same false gods 
of worship as well as Sunday keeping because they go together. Let's see what else he has to say here. It says, Babylon is a term which embraces not only the Roman Catholic Church, but religious bodies which have sprung from her, bringing many of her errors and traditions along with them. We're going to go to James White now, and we're going to see what James White says about Protestantism or the Reformers. The greatest fault we can find in the Reformation is the Reformers stopped reforming. So what's taking place here? Protestantism does a wonderful work. God is calling them. They are following. He's leading them out of Catholicism. And they do a wonderful work, make great strides, but they fall short. There comes a point where they stop. And where do they stop? Let's continue reading and see where that is. Had they gone on and onward till they had left the last vestige of papacy behind, such as natural immorality, sprinkling the Trinity and Sunday keeping, the church would now be free uh, from her unscriptural errors. So what are we seeing here? What, what are those errors and traditions? The Trinity and Sunday keeping. It's the heart of Babylon. And when I look at the two-horned beast, those two horns, I cannot help but think, are representing the Trinity and Sunday keeping because it is the heart of Babylon. It's the heart of Protestantism. There are some 2,000 denominations or more within the Protestant within Protestantism, and each believing something different. But what do they hold in common? They all worship some form of the Trinity. Every one of them. I can't think of one that doesn't. And what else do they do? They worship this false god on Sunday. So all their error, and there are many other errors, all stem from the false gods of worship. Now what about the corporate Seventh-day Adventist church? And I say corporate Seventh-day Adventist church as opposed to the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitarian movement. Does the fact that the corporate Seventh-day Adventist Church worship the Trinity, the false gods of Babylon, on Saturday, the Seventh-day Sabbath, the biblical Sabbath, make them any less part of this beast? It doesn't, does it? If anything, it makes it all the more insulting to the Almighty Father, the Creator. Now, what about those of us within the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitarian movement? Where do we fall? Are we Protestants? No, we are most certainly are not Protestants. We believe in the Father and Son. We believe in the pillars of our faith, the Adventism that, that, that God called out from under Protestantism. Now, are we protesting? We most certainly are. We're protesting against the Trinity and Sunday keeping. We're protesting against Protestantism. And in that sense of the word, we're Protestants. But we are not Protestants in the sense of the church, my friends. We are Seventh-day Adventists. We're going to go to Joseph Bates now, and we're going to see what Joseph Bates says about God's people being called out of Babylon. And he says, Fifth state Sardis signifies that which remains, that are ready to die. This we understand to be the present nominal church. I'm going to pause there for one second. When we hear Ellen White and the pioneers speak of the nominal church, most generally, they are speaking of Protestantism. Let's read that again. It says, This we understand to be the present nominal church, Protestantism, the Babylon which God's people came out from under the second angel's message. So what took place here? Babylon had fallen. How did they fall? It's as we read, they fell short. They would not let go of the errors and traditions, primarily the worship of the false gods. Trinity, the Trinity worship. God calls his people out by the second angel's message in 1843 and 1844. It says, stand with me. I am your God. And they do so. 
and they accept the Father and Son, and they prepare for the second coming of Christ, it is a beautiful time. Let's go to Uriah Smith again, and he's going to speak to us on the fall of Babylon. And it says, the conclusion is therefore inevitable that the message announcing the fall, fall of Babylon, had reference almost wholly to the Protestant churches. Yes, my friends, Adventism was called out from Protestantism to worship the one true God of the Bible and his only begotten son. We're going to look at another parallel right now. And we're going to compare what we've just seen, God calling his people out in the 1843 and 1844 and making himself known to the Exodus. Out of Egypt, God calling his people out during the time of Moses to stand with him. Now, where are the similarities here? They were both worshiping false gods, both in Egypt and both in Babylon, Protestantism, the nominal church with which Adventism was called out from under. Now, we're going to read some verses now that talk of the Exodus, and we're going to see how God made himself known, clearly made himself known to these people as he called them out. First thing he does, we're going to start with Exodus 7, verse 5. And it says, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So God's calling out his people from among the Egyptians, um, from away from their false worship. And he's saying, I am your God. I am your creator. I am the one who freed you from your captivity. Let's continue reading another verse now. This is Exodus 29, 46, and it says, And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. He says it twice there. God is making himself known, and he's making it clear. I am your God, not these false gods. Very similar to what happened in 1843 and 1844. Leviticus 11.45 For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. That's the second part of the equation. Be holy, for I am holy. First, it's fear God, then we give glory to Him. That's the first angel's message. And how do we give glory to Him? We allow the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Father and Son, to fashion us into the likeness of the Father and Son. There is no power in the separate Holy Spirit, the separate God which was made by man. There is no power there to overcome. There is no power there to take on the image of the Father and Son. And there's no glory to the Father and Son. So God is saying here, For I am the Lord, accept me and give me glory. Let's keep reading now. We're going to Leviticus 25, 38. It says, I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Again, he is stressing that he is God. There are so many verses like this. This is just a handful. Numbers 15, 41. I am the Lord your God which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Says it there three times. Three times he says it there. I think he's really stressing and to make a point here uh, that he is the God, not these false gods of worship. And that's the first thing God does whenever he calls his people out. Deuteronomy 6.12, we'll end with this one. It says, Then beware, lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. We're asked here not to forget. What are we asked not to forget? The God that led us out. 
just as in 1843, 1844. We are not to forget the God that led us out of Babylon, my friends, the God that the Adventist pioneers stood for. And what else have we been asked not to forget? The Seventh-day Sabbath, my friends. We have been asked not to forget that as well. They go together. The one true God of the Bible and the Seventh-day Sabbath belong together, not the false gods of Babylon. We're going to go to Jeremiah 29 now. And we're going to see how God's people were led away captive by Nebuchadnezzar. And we read, and, it's, and we're reading from verse 1. It says, Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem unto the residue of the elders, which were carried away captives, and to the priests, and to the prophets, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. So what's taking place here? These are God's people that at one time were led out of Egypt. And now they're going right back into Babylon, right back into the false worship of false gods. And who is leading them away? It's Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is leading them away back into Babylon, back into the worship of false gods. Well, Adventism has its Nebuchadnezzar also. The same parallel falls in line with Adventist history. Yes, God led us out under the second angel's message. Decades go by, generations go by, and what happens? We are led back into Babylon, back into the normal church, back into the gods of Protestantism by our Nebuchadnezzar. When I look at all of, all of Adventism, I can't think of anyone that fits this role better than Leroy Froome. Leroy Froome is our Nebuchadnezzar. We are going to read something now from, Neb from Nebuchadnezzar, yes, from Leroy Froome, and see what his thoughts are what was he thinking back then? It says, I was compelled to search out valuable books written by men outside our faith. Outside our faith. It says, the next logical inevitable step involved revisions of certain standard works so as to eliminate statements that taught and thus perpetuated erroneous view on the Godhead. What did Froome do? He went outside of Adventism. And he learned of this Trinity God. And he brought it in. And he goes... The God of the pioneers is erroneous. This is the real God. And he goes and re makes revisions in the writings and eliminates statements that say a contrary. He is truly our Nebuchadnezzar. Now we're going to see what Ellen White has to say about the fall of Adventism. Let's see what she says. The enemy of souls has sought to bring in the supposition that a great reformation was to take place among Seventh-day Adventists. And that this reformation would consist in giving up the doctrines which stand as the pillars of our faith and engage in a process of reorganization. A new church, my friends. What we have today in the corporate Seventh-day Adventist church is a new church. It's not the Adventism of the Adventist pioneers. Those doctrines are being counted as error. A new organization. When Ellen White says that the church will never go into Babylon, what church was she speaking of? This new organization? This new church? No, she was speaking of the church of her day. Her and the Adventist pioneers. The church of Philadelphia. That is not the church of today. Let's continue reading. It says, Were this reformation to take place, what would result? The principles of truth that God in his wisdom has given to the remnant church would be discarded our religion would be changed. Let's continue reading. It says, The fundamental principles that have sustained the work for the last 50 years would be counted as error. What did we read from Froome? What did we read from Froome just a moment ago? He went out our sight, our faith, learned of another God. He changed our religion, changed our writings, counted what the pioneers believed. The God of the pioneers, the, the God that gave 
the light to Ellen White and the pioneers as error. That was being counted now as error. She predicted it so well. A new organization, a new church would be established. Books of a new order would be written. A system of intellectual philosophy would be introduced. The founders of the system would go into the cities, I'm sorry, and do a wonderful work. Oh, the corporate church truly has. They've reached the world with the three angels' message, bringing thousands in. Thousands in to worship what? The false gods of Babylon. It says the Sabbath, of course, would be lightly regarded as also the God who created it. Nothing would be allowed to stand in the way of the new movement, the new church. The leaders would teach that virtue was better than vice, but God being removed and replaced with what? The Trinity. God being removed and replaced by the Trinity gods of Babylon. They would place their dependence on human power, which without God is worthless. My friends, there is no power within the Trinity for anything. No power to overcome. No power to take on the image of the Father and Son. And it goes on and says, Their foundation would be built on the sand and storm and tempest would sweep away the structure. Who has authority to begin such a movement? We have our Bibles. We have our experience attested to by the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. They had the proper understanding of the Holy Spirit, my friends. The Spirit of the Father and Son, not a separate God, not a separate being. We have a truth that admits of no compromise. Shall we not repudiate, protest everything that is not in harmony with His truth? Yes, we are protesting against everything that is not in harmony with the light that God gave to the Adventist pioneers the light of the Bible. So let's confirm now what the Adventist pioneers believe. And to do that, we are going to go to some respected writers or, or authors within Adventism. We're going to start with George Knight. He was just that, an author, but he was also a historian. Let's see what he has to say. Most of the founders of Seventh-day Adventism would not be able to join the church today if they had to subscribe to the denomination's fundamental beliefs. More specifically, most would not be able to agree to belief number two, which deals with the doctrine of the Trinity. They were non-Trinitarian. They came out from under the Trinity. So yes, of course they would not be able to join the church today, nor would they want to. They would not be a part of this church. They came out of that. Why would they go back into it? We're going to go now to William G. Johnson. He was also an author, and he was also an editor for the Adventist Review. Let's see what he says. Adventist beliefs have changed over the years under the impact of present truth. Most startling is the teaching regarding Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. The Trinitarian understanding of God, now part of our fundamental beliefs, was not generally held by the early Adventists. No, it was not, my friends. It was not held by the early Adventists. It came later. It came later, and it was our Nebuchadnezzar, Leroy Froome, that pioneered this. But he wasn't alone. He had a lot of help from very high up. Now, we're going to look at this timeline of how, what took place. How did we end up back in Babylon? How did we make that return? So, we're going to look at this now, starting with 1927, 28. And then we're going to look at the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And it says, May I state that my book, The Coming of the Comforter, was the result of a series of studies that I gave in 1927 and 28 to ministerial institutes throughout North America. You cannot imagine how I was pummeled by some of the old-timers 
because I pressed on the personality of the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Godhead. Some men denied that, still deny it, but the book has become to be generally accepted as standard. Oh, shameful, my friends. So what was he doing? Well, first of all, who was the old timers? It was the pioneers. There were still many remaining pioneers that hadn't passed away yet, that clung to the truth, the truth, the pillars of our faith. But what was coming in? He was introducing now the Holy Spirit, not as the Spirit of the Father and Son now, as a separate being, a separate God. This was changing. This was coming in. He was taking baby steps to bring the Trinity into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now we're going to go to the 1930s, and we're going to be reading from Movement of Destiny. Now, this is from author to reader, which is Froome's introduction to the book. And the book is actually uh, Leroy Froome, uh, a chronicle of Leroy Froome's life or work within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So let's see what Arthur G. Daniels was saying to Froome back in the 30s. It says, back in the spring of 1930, Arthur G. Daniels, for more than 20 years president of General Conference, told me, Leroy Froome, he believed that at a later time I should undertake a thorough survey of the entire plan of redemption. Changes. They wanted changes to take place here. It says, I was a connecting link between past leaders and the present. But he said, it is to be later, not yet, not yet. And Elder Daniels recognized the serious problems involved and sensed almost prophetically certain difficulties that would confront. He knew that time would be required for certain theological wounds to heal and for attitudes to modify on the part of some. What attitudes? Attitudes of the pioneers that still believed in the Father and Son. And the many errors. There were many errors that were coming in that the pioneers would not have agreed with. And we continue reading. Possibly it would be necessary to wait until certain individuals had dropped out of action, died, before the needed portrayal could wisely be brought forth. Wow, that's frightening. That is frightening. They wanted these pioneers to die off so they could what? Change what the Adventist pioneers believed. And what would be central to that? The false god of the Trinity. Everything stems from the god or gods we worship. Ellen White predicts something here that we're going to read right now. It says, I tell you now that when I am laid to rest, great changes will take place. She's right again, my friends. She's right again. 1931. We are going to be looking at the fundamental beliefs. Something changed in 1931. They didn't hold back for long because this is just a couple years or a year or so after Daniel said this. But they didn't waste a whole lot of time here. It says that the Godhead or Trinity consists of what was introduced here to the fundamental belief number two, the Trinity. The Trinity was introduced and the rest, not a whole lot changes because they're taking baby steps here. But this gets interesting. It says the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, the great regenerating power in the work of redemption. And they use Matthew 28, 19. So what are they doing? They're making it another being. They're making it another God. Now there is an understanding here in Matthew 28:19 that the Adventist pioneers had correct. They believed in Matthew 28:19, which is the formula for baptism, which says, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Ellen White says over 200 times that we are to baptize this way, and the pioneers all did so. But they had the proper understanding. They believed in the Almighty Father. They believed in the only begotten Son. And they also believed in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Father and the Son, by which we are fashioned into the likeness of the Father and Son. 
and it's beautiful when we're baptized in such a manner. But now they're taking the same baptismal vow that Adventists have been using for many, many decades, and they're changing it to gradually have reference to the Trinity, to the false gods of Babylon. And it's just being sneakily done behind the scenes, and very few people were catching it at this time. Now let's look at number three and see how this is taking place, because they're working on introducing God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and a three-in-one, one-in-three God. So again, we're still 1931 Fundamental Beliefs, and this is number three, that Jesus is very God. So they're planting the seeds to make God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit a three-in-one God. Now, Jesus is still God to us. Oh, there's no doubt about that. All things were created by him, so he's still God to us. But he's not the Almighty Father. But now they're separating him. They're taking away his sonship and making him as much the Almighty Father as the Almighty Father. Very confusing. This is truly a mystery, a mystery of Babylon. And it's not what the Adventist pioneers believe. But this is baby steps. This is actually a very soft approach. But let's go on here. We're going to go to the 40s now. And most specifically, 1941. This is a letter from Froome uh, to R.A. Anderson and others. He wrote this in 96, uh, 1966, looking back to the 40s. And it says, I am writing you, brethren, as a group, for you are the only living members of the original committee of 13 appointed in 1941 to frame a uniform baptismal covenant. So what is happening here? We're seeing, based on these fundamental beliefs, a new baptismal covenant. Actually, it's probably the first baptismal covenant, but official covenant. But now it's being adopted by this committee of 13. Now, who is this committee of 13? Almost sounds like a secret society. I assume that they were appointed by the board, but most likely the membership was not aware of what was taking place here. So let's continue reading and seeing what the goal of this committee was. It says, the task of this committee was to form a baptismal covenant and vow based on the 1931 fundamental belief statement in the yearbook and manual. What was coming in in 1931, as we just read? The Trinity was being brought in. So now they're making a baptismal vow based on the Trinity, changing the God that we are being baptized to, or gods rather. And we read on, it says, it was also to point up a bit more sharply the first, second, and third person of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, a three-in-one God, one and three, whatever you want to call it. Isn't that something? People were now being baptized into the Trinity, and I'm not sure everyone realized it yet, because this is really the high ups, the board of the church causing this to happen. We saw what Daniel's thought. It's frightening. It's really frightening. Now our youth, our children, when they're becoming of age for baptism, are not being baptized in the, the, the Father and Son and the, and the Spirit of the Father and Son as the, whole, as the pioneers did. They're being baptized into God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy, another God altogether, the God of, the, of Protestantism and Catholicism, the God of Babylon. Okay, we're still 1941 now. We're going to look at this baptismal thing one more time because this is a very critical change. This is a very pivotal point in Adventist history. This is, in my, in my opinion, probably the most major thing that has happened in our history. Changing the gods that we are baptized to is really taking a knee to this new God. And it says here, significance of the certificate. Again, well, this is Leroy Froome. All this has been Leroy Froome, this, that, the previous statement as well, uh, from Movement of Destiny. Now, the significance of the certificate, that's referring to the new 
or actually baptismal vow. I'm not sure it was new. And this is now it's being official that there's a baptismal vow within Adventism. And it says, as the eternal verities, this covenant now appearing along with our fundamental belief statement in the church manual stipulates in explicit terms our, our united belief in the first, second, and third person of the Godhead or Trinity. This is what it was. And it says, the Uniform Baptismal Certificate was adopted by the church in 1941. The culminating events of the decade, 1931 to 1941, consequently marked the end of an old epoch or era and the beginning of a new day. It was definitely another major turning point in denominational history. Oh, it was. That's a big turn. That is a big turn. A lot happened in the 40s within Adventism. This is our turn back in to Babylon. Our Nebuchadnezzar was at work. Now, we're going to jump to the 1980s and we're going to come right back to where we were. But what happened with the fundamental beliefs in 1980? We're going to see. Now, these were baby steps back then, but look how bold it got now. Very different from that soft approach. Number two, the Trinity. Three in one God. Oh, actually, I misspoke there, but it says there is one God. Same thing, though. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a unity of three co-eternal persons. Again, it's a three-in-one, one-in-three God. And what are three, four, and five? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is basically what is being said. What is this? This is the God of Catholicism. This is the God of Protestantism. This is the God of Babylon. And it was now part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But now the members were on board. It was a full-fledged thing now. There was unity within the church on these false gods. It was no longer behind the scenes. Okay, we're going back to 1944 here. And we're going to be reading again from Movement of Destiny. These are the words of Leroy Froome. And so what took place in 1944? Well, there were some changes being done to the writings. And let's read about that. It says, The removal of the last standing vestige of Arianism in our standard literature was accomplished through the deletions from the classic DNR in 1944. That's Daniel and Revelation, the Uriah Smith that we've been reading from, but we've been reading from the 1897 edition. So what was being changed? Any vestige of Arianism. And what is Arianism? It's the belief in the Father and Son. Yes, the Adventist pioneers believed that Jesus was truly the begotten of the Father, just as the Bible says. Not created, but that he was truly the begotten of the Father. Just as those within the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitarian movement believe today. Let's go to 1946 now. And we're still a movement of destiny, but we're going to read about the book Evangelism. And the book Evangelism has had a very powerful role in changing the thinking within Adventism towards the Trinity. So let's read about that. It says, Book Evangelism plays vital part. Oh, it truly does. And again, those are the words of Froome. And what vital part? In changing gods. And it goes, it says, Later, when I connected with the Ministerial Association of the General Conference, I did considerable research in the Spirit of Prophecy writings on this subject and found much more when we were asked to help in compiling the book Evangelism. These and many other councils became a vital part of that book. So what was he doing? As we know, we, we saw earlier, he went outside our faith, learned of the Trinity, and came in. And so what is he doing here to assist with this book? He is compiling quotes from Ellen White that could be remotely fit this new God. He's not taking them for what they say. He is trying to make them fit 
this God. But he goes further to make this happen. So this is again, uh, 1946 evangelism, the preface. So what does it say in the preface? It says, side headings in bold type have been supplied by the compilers. Who was one of these compilers? Leroy Froome and others, Ply Anderson and others were involved. And what were some of these headers? It says, here's an example. It says, the eternal dignitaries of the Trinity. That is something never set by Ellen White. She was a non-Trinitarian. But what do they do? They use a side heading and they put these quotes taken out of context to lead the reader to think, oh, Ellen White was a Trinitarian. The pioneers were Trinitarian. And back then they didn't have computers. It was a lot easier to do this. But my friends, this is the minds being hypnotized. This is the minds being hypnotized. And people still cling to this book today. We're going to the 1950s now. The 1950s was another pivotal time. A lot happened in the 1950s. We're going to learn a little bit about Donald Barnhouse and Walter Martin. Barnhouse, he ran Eternity Magazine, which was part of Zondervan, and were also there was also Walter Martin, which also played a key role back then. He, he uh, established the Christian Research Institute, and he was also a respected author and writer. Both of these are leaders within the Protestant world, very well-respected leaders within the Protestant world. Well, Martin writes a series of articles for Barnhouse's magazine, the first of which accusing Abbotism as being a cult. Well, this gets back to Leroy Froome. He doesn't like this so much, and he says, hey, how can we fix this? He goes to Barnhouse and Martin and says, we can't have this. And Barnhouse and Martin say, no problem. Change the God you worship. And a lot of other things here they want to change also. And of course, I'm paraphrasing. And Leroy Froome goes back to Adventism. He says, no problem. I've already been working on this. So he puts the book Questions on Doctrine together and makes these changes that these leaders in Protestantism demanded if we were going to be welcomed back into the fold. So he takes the manuscript back before it ever hits the shelves, before it ever goes to print uh, within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And they look at it and they go, okay, this is acceptable. If you make these changes, we will praise you and we will welcome you back in to the fold. You will once again be a Protestant denomination. And Martin, being a man of his word, he writes these two subsequent articles praising Adventism for their bold move to step off the platform from which God had led. This was a troubling time. This was a troubling time. Now, let's look back at an article now. We're going back to these articles. Now, at the end of the series, Barnhouse writes a piece, and he, he is speaking for himself and Martin at this point. Let's see what their thoughts were. And this is after QOD had been written. It says, in conclusion, I should like to say that we are delighted to do justice to a much maligned group of sincere believers and in our minds and hearts take them out of the group of utter heretics. Wow. To acknowledge them as redeemed, redeemed brethren and members of the body of Christ? Protestantism is the body of Christ. We are now redeemed back into the to the, to the nominal church which God had led us out of? We were utter heretics? This is a big thing. And this is a very big thing. It's shameful. This is our return to Babylon. And not only that, this was written in 1956. It wasn't until 1957 until the Adventist church 
actually had the chance to get their hands on QOD. But it wasn't long. They've accepted it. And today, QOD is still a popular book um, among the Adventist church. And we saw the 1980 statement. But this is when it became open. This is when it was open to the public. We have changed gods. And it was open to the membership. We have now changed gods. It's no longer behind the scenes now. It's out front. So this is a big turning point as well. But the changes had already been made. It was just now being brought out to the open. To sum this up, let's go to Merle D. Burnt. He is professor of church of, of the Church of History, director for the Center uh, for Adventist Research. And he kind of sums this up nicely. I like this. It says, The Seventh-day Adventist Church gradually shifted during the 1930s, or from the 1930s to the 50s, to the Orthodox Christian view on the Trinity and deity of Christ. He's short and sweet and simple. Basically, we had a gradual shift. We changed gods, and it happened between the 30s and the 50s. And that's, that's what happened, my friends. That's everything in a nutshell. But let's sum it up one more time. We're going to go to Vance Farrell, because Vance Farrell was there. Vance Farrell was there back in the 40s and 50s at the seminary. When this was happening, he cleaned the office for Leroy Froome. He's a great resource. Now, he wrote a book called Our Evangelical Earthquake, which really sums up the 40s and 50s nicely. Now, we're not going to be reading from that book right now, but what we are going to be reading from is his site, SDA Defend, which is part of his ministry, as well as Harvest Time books. But this article is, article is titled, The Beginning of the End, The Martin Barnhouse Evangelical Conference and Their Aftermath. And it's more than an article. It's almost a book. There's a lot to it. We're going to be reading Section 4. Actually, it's the introduction by Farrell in Section 4, which deals with the 1971 Movement of Destiny. Again, that's Froome's book. And we read, Leroy Edwin Froome had been a key researcher for the General Conference staff since the 1930s. He had been around a long time and had had his finger in many doctrinal puddings, according to what he tells us in his book, Movement of Destiny, published in 1971. He was present when R.A. Anderson and others revised Uriah Smith's Daniel Revelation and our precious Bible readings for the home in the 1940s, as we read. And to this must be added the efforts of Froome in the 40s and early 50s to win friendships in Protestant theological circles. 40s and early 50s. Remember those years. 40s and early 50s. This is when we were winning, winning friendship within the Protestant circles. Our religion was changing. Our religion was changing forever. And we continue. It says, Later, as he relates, others in the General Conference united with him in this task as they sought to effect doctrinal reconciliation with their separated brethren. Wow. Kind of like we read earlier from Barnhouse himself. We were the separated brethren, and now they're welcoming us back. What is the doctrinal, doctrinal reconciliation taking place? Is it, are we introducing the truth to Protestantism and bringing them into our truths, our faith, our platform? No, just the opposite. We are now reconcilia reconciliating with Protestantism. Oh, we're sorry. We left your God. We want your God back. We apologize. Will you please take us back? And I'm paraphrasing. This is sad, though. This is what took place. We were letting go of the God that led us out of this nominal church. And we were now... It, this, he separated us from the church, and we are now being taken back in. We are adopting, being adopted now back into the fold, back into the fold of the nominal church. Let's see what it says as we continue. It says, the one most in error is the one who needs to make the most amends. I guess that was us. 
Was it, my friends? Were we the ones in error? Were the Adventist pioneers the one in error? Was Ellen White wrong? Did we have the wrong God? Was it God that let us out? Let's continue reading. And apparently there were some who felt that what Adventism inherited from God through the pioneers and the testimonies were less accurate and pure than the sort of vagaries of modern Protestantism. Wow. It is a striking fact that we know of not one instance which Shiler English or Walter Martin or Donald Barnhouse gave in on one single doctrinal point in the entire affair. All the submitting came from Adventists. All the compromises were for us to make. From start to finish, evangelical Protestantism provided the standard of doctrinal purity that should be attained. This is what was in the minds of those back then. Not once was it ever suggested that Martin Barnhouse or English that anything of worth was to be found in Adventism that Protestantism did not already have. As Leroy Edwin Froome neared the end of his life's journey, he wrote a book, Movement of Destiny, and quite frankly, we are indebted to him for having done so. In From Author to Reader, he tells us that he wrote the volume in order to explain or rewrite Adventist doctrinal history. My friends, Leroy Froome is Seventh-day Adventist Nebuchadnezzar. He is truly our Nebuchadnezzar. He did change our history. He did lead us back into Babylon. And he had a lot of help, as we have seen. It says, but he is careful to mention that he could not do so until enough others had died off to make such an attempt practical. Wow. Wow. This is what happened, my friends. This is what has happened within Seventh-day Adventist Church. And it continues. It says, Then as we traverse the book, we find that the theme parallels the concerns of questions on doctrine. What were these concerns? These were concerns of the leaders within Protestantism that we were now required to change if we were going to be welcomed back into the fold. So QOD addresses that. QOD meaning questions on doctrine. And what was the number one thing? Arianism must go. Belief in the Father, Son must go. You must accept the Trinity. And QOD addressed this, changing our gods, making it official. And it goes on. It says, the nature of Christ's teaching must be revamped. The atonement must be seen as finished, as being finished at the cross. Ellen White did not originate Adventist doctrines. Adventists and Adventists have been too much concerned about obedience to the law. Wow, these things were all being changed. All kinds of errors came in by our Nebuchadnezzar. Not just the God we serve, many other things came in with him. Movement of Destiny is a lengthy attempt to explain how we gradually put away all those errors. Oh, all those errors. My friends, we did not have error. The, the platform of truth that the Adventist pioneers had was led by God. It is truth and it is light. And we continue. The significant portion of this book the significant portions of this book are quoted below. We're not going to read that because this next sentence sums it up. It says, They will tell you that most of the efforts to make the changeover in the crucial doctrines took place in the 40s and 50s and were nicely completed by them. What was nicely completed in the 40s and 50s? And remember those years? The changeover. Changing over our God. A new God. And a lot of other error was changed over also. But everything starts with the God that we worship. 
And we continue. There is reason why the new theology has grown so wondrously, wondrously in the 60s and 70s. The reason is to be found in the changes that were made in the 40s and 50s in our published doctrinal statements. My friends, we've seen the 30s, 40s, and 50s a lot take place. And in the 40s and 50s, it was now out into the open. We were officially Protestant denomination. We had gone back to the nominal church. We were no longer the peculiar people, the remnant church. Neil C. Wilson, vice president at the time that he wrote what we're just getting ready, what we're getting ready to read, uh, of the, he was vice president of the General Conference of the North American Division. He was also chairman of the Guiding Committee for Movement of Destiny. And this is the preface that he wrote, or a paragraph from the preface that he wrote for Movement of Destiny. The preparation of this volume began about 40 years ago, when the author was alerted by church leaders to prepare himself for this particular long-range assignment. This was a long-range assignment. A lo what was this long-range assignment? To change the God of worship and to bring in every error that goes along with it. We saw the Committee of 13. We saw A.G. Daniels, the high-up leaders. Leroy Froome was just a front, front, man, front man. The church had been led away led away off its platform right back into Babylon and Leroy Froome was not just the he was the Nebuchadnezzar but he was not alone it was a long-range assignment that went all the way back to Daniels remember what we read by A.G. Daniels we're going to be reading now from the Adventist Review and it's still in regards of Neil Wilson an announcement that he made to the General Conference in Dallas in what it says here of 1981. Although from documents I have read, I'm pretty certain that it took place in 1980. But in any case, in 1980 or 81, SDA General Conference President Neil C. Wilson announced to the General Conference meeting in Dallas, Texas, that the church had officially adopted the Trinity Doctrine which was now number two in the church's 27 fundamental beliefs. He wrote, there is another universal and truly Catholic organization, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Wow. Wow. We were a Catholic denomination now. In reality, though, we were Protestant. We had returned to Protestantism. But the difference is, is still true because they had the same God. Whether it's Catholicism or, or Protestantism, the God is the same. The Trinity God of worship is the same. It's still the same errors and tra uh, tra traditions that were brought down from Catholicism. But now, something was different though. We were welcomed back in to the Daughters of Babylon, this time as a sister to the Daughter of Babylon. As we saw, we were adopted back into the fold. Let's see what Ellen White says about being a sister to the Daughter of Babylon. And she says, we must, as a people, arouse and cleanse the camp of Israel. We are in danger of becoming a sister to fallen Babylon, of allowing our churches to become corrupted and filled with every foul spirit, a cage of, for every unclean and hateful bird. Let's read another statement. If we turn from the testimony of God's word and accept false doctrines because our fathers taught them, we fall under the condemnation pronounced upon Babylon. We are drinking of the wine of her abominations. Is the corporate Seventh-day Adventist church drinking of the wine of Babylon? They most certainly are. They're worshiping the same gods. So they're drinking of the wine. And who are these gods? of the fathers of Protestantism, which Adventism came out from under. And she says, 
we, they fall, not we, in the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitarian movement, but the corporate Seventh-day Adventist church falls under the same condemnation pronounced upon Babylon. She is returning these false gods. This is serious, my friends. This is serious. Our Nebuchadnezzar, Leroy Froome, has led us back into Babylon. We're going to go back to Jeremiah 29 now, and we're going to go to verse 4. And this is God, where God speaks to those who have been taken from him back into Babylon. And we're speaking in the time of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 4. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. And just as God was speaking to these people, he speaks to us, my friends. He is speaking to those who have stepped off the platform, who have allowed the leaders, the pastors and other leaders within the corporate Seventh-day Adventist church to carry us away right back into Babylon. But he has not given up on us. He has not given up. The love is still there. In Jeremiah 29, 5 and 6, God calls on them to prosper. And we are reading, we're starting with verse 5. It says, Build ye houses and dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to, your, to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that they may be increased there and not diminished. So God is saying to those in Jeremiah's day, Go and prosper. Yes, you're in Babylon, but go and prosper. Increase. Well, the same thing, there is a parallel here with Adventism. The same thing took place in Adventism. Though they were in Babylon, they were still to go and do a great work and take the message to the world. Let's read now Ellen White on this taking place. A new organization would be established. Books of a new order would be written. We saw both those things taking place. A system of intellectual philosophy would be introduced, and it most certainly has. The founders of this system would go into the cities and do a wonderful work. And again, the, the, the corporate Seventh-day Adventist Church has done a marvelous work. But again, they have been brought in to worship the false gods of the Trinity. Thousands have been come in, have been brought in, introduced to a lot of truth, but also the false worship of Babylon. Jeremiah 29, 8 and 9, God warns of false shepherds. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which ye cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. Just since Jeremiah's day, they're saying, Hey, don't listen to these false gods in Babylon. They deceive you. And the same thing is taking place within the Corpus Seventh-day Adventist Church. God is, is saying, Hey, don't listen to these pastors. Don't listen to these leaders that claim to be sent by God. They are steering you to another God. Do not listen to them. Do not hearken to them. Listen to the people I have sent. Listen to the prophets I have sent you and are sending right now. Jeremiah 29.10 Now, this is an interesting one. This is... This is going to be fascinating. It says, after 70 years, God calls his people out of Babylon. Let's read about that. Verse 10. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. So what was taking place in the time of Jeremiah? 
God was calling them back to Jerusalem, calling back to him, making himself known once again. And where's the parallel now with the Seventh-day Adventist Church? The same thing is happening now. My friends, this happened after 70 years. We learned a lot of what took, on, took place between the 30s and the 50s. And if you look at the 40s and 50s, and you, you add 70 years to that, where does that place us? My friends, it's now. We are in that time frame. God is once again calling His people out. It is time. He's calling us out to what place? Back to the platform of the Adventist pioneers. Back to Him. Back to believing in the only true God of the Bible and His only begotten Son. The reign is over. We are no longer held captive to the Trinity worship, to the Trinity gods of Babylon. The truth is out there. It's for us to accept. How is God doing this? How is God making this call right now? Well, He's doing so by the fourth angel's message. It's a repeat of the second angel's message of 1843 and 1844. God is once again calling out His people. Let's see what Ellen White says about the fourth angel's message. This message seemed to be in addition to the third message, joining it as the midnight cry joins the, joined the second angel's message in 1844. The, the glory of God rested upon the patient waiting saints, and they fearlessly gave the last solemn warning, proclaiming the fall of Babylon and calling upon God's people to come out of her that they might escape her fearful doom. The fall of Babylon. This is proclaiming the fall of Babylon as it did in the time of 1843 and 1844, the corporate 7th Church has fallen, just as the Protestant church of that time. They have fallen how? As we've said so many times here, to the false worship of the Trinity. God's calling His people out. Come stand with me. This is the fourth angel's message. We are under the fourth angel's message. And as people come out and join this call, it swells to that loud cry. And it's getting louder, and it's getting louder, and it's getting louder. Let's continue reading. Actually, this is a separate quote. It says, Today, as in the days of Elijah, the line of demarcation between God's commandment-keeping people and the worshipers of false gods is clearly drawn. How long halt ye between two opinions? Elijah cried, If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the message for today is, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen. Come out of her, my people. My friends, come out of her. This is the call. Choose your God today. Is it going to be Baal or is it going to be the God of the Bible? Is it going to be the Almighty Father and His only begotten Son? Ellen White says thousands will step out into the light. It says almost unconsciously barriers have been erected in the straight and narrow way. Stones of stumbling have been placed in the path. These will all be rolled away. They are, my friends. We have the internet. We have this venue of YouTube right here. The secret is up. The gig is up. It can't be hid anymore. These stones have been rolled away. The captivity is over. That reign of the Trinity is once again over. Now it's your choice. It's your choice. Will you step out into the truth or you continue to worship the false gods of Babylon? We can't claim ignorance anymore. The safeguards which false shepherds have thrown around their flocks will be as not. Thousands will step out into the light and work to spread the light. Heavenly intelligences will combine with human agencies. Wow, thousands will step out into the light. Who are these thousands? Remember the great work that the church would do while in Babylon? 
thousands will come into the church. Where are those thousands going to go now? They're going to come stand on that platform of truth. They're going to call out to stand with the Father and His only begotten Son once again. We continue reading. It says, Thus encourage the church. What church is she speaking of? Is she speaking of the corporate Seventh-day Adventist church of today? Or is she speaking the church of her day, which is still here today? It says, Will indeed arise and shine. And it's calling for you now by the fourth angel's message to come step onto this platform. It says, throwing all her sanctified energies into the contest. Thus, the design of God is accomplished. The lost pearls are recovered. The lost pearls, it says here. Wow, the lost pearls are recovered. We're pearls in God's eyes. He wants us back. He wants us back. It says, prophets have discerned this grand work afar off and have caught the inspiration of the hour and traced the wonderful descriptions of things yet to be. What a prediction she made. Once again, we're lost pearls, my friends, and God wants us back. We are pearls in his eyes. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. God calls on us to search for him with, the, with all our heart. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an unexpected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall seek search for me with all your heart. My friends, God wants to be found. He wants you to search for him. He wants you to let go of the false gods of Babylon. He wants you to let go of that trinity. Let's continue reading. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord. That's a promise. God wants to be found by you, and he will. If you search, you shall find. And it reads on, it says, And I will turn away your captivity. We're no longer going to be held captive to this trinity. It no longer binds us. That has fallen. That rain has fallen. It says, And I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. And I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. We're no longer captive, my friends. It's now choice. Will we step out and back onto the platform of truth? Will we once again accept the only true God of the Bible and His only begotten Son? But there's another message. There's a message to those who choose not to step out. And we're going to read about that now, starting with verse 15 of Jeremiah 29. It says, Because ye have said the Lord hath raised up prophets in Babylon, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will send upon them the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, and will make them like vile figs that cannot be eaten. They are so evil. Because they have not hearkened to my words, saith the Lord, which I sent unto them by my servants and the prophets, rising up early and sending them. But ye would not hear, saith the Lord. What did they not hear? The message from the servants and the prophets of the Adventist pioneers and Ellen White. And right now, by the fourth angel's message, there are many servants, servants proclaiming the truth. Are they being hearkened to? Are they being disregarded? for the false leaders within the corporate church that carry the torch of Frum. We're going to keep reading on verse 20. It says, Hear ye therefore the word of the Lord, all ye of the captivity whom I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
This is God speaking to you. This is God speaking to all who have been re- have returned to Babylon. So the question is, are we willing to answer the call? God is calling. Are we willing to answer? Are we willing to stand with Him? Are we do? Are we willing to let go of the false gods that have been forced upon us? We have this choice. It has been forced upon us. You have a choice. Let's, con- let's read now. We're going to go back to the spirit of prophecy. It says, My brethren, take your position where God bids you. Leave alone those who, after light has been repeatedly given them, have taken a stand on the opposite side. Said my accompanying angel, They must give up errors and traditions. They must give up the Trinity. Recede from men and turn wholly to God and His Word. My friends, we must let go of this tradition this error, and turn wholly to God, the only true God of the Bible, our Maker. And we continue reading. It says, They must be purified, made white and tried, that second half of the equation. Those who endure the bitter trial will obtain an eternal victory. Victory is ours, my friend, but only by the Almighty Father and His only begotten Son. We, can, we read again, or we're reading from a new quote now, or new statement. It says, The voice of God calls you, as it did Elijah, come out of the cave and stand with God and hear what He will say unto you. Are you willing to come out of that cave? Are you willing to come out of that cave and stand with God? God is calling to you right now. He will be found by you if you want to find Him. And we read, If you want power, you may have it, as it is awaiting your draft upon it. Only believe in God, take Him at His word, act by faith, and blessings will come. Blessings will come, my friends. The power is yours. There's no power in the Trinity. There is power in the Father and His only begotten Son, and the Spirit of the Father and the only begotten Son. Are you willing? Are you willing to step out of that cave? Step back onto the platform of truth. Acknowledge the true God of the Bible. Heed the fourth angel's message. Be a part of that message. Let that be your voice. My friends, that door is open. God is calling you. You are a pearl. He wants you. He wants you back. He is just asking you to make that choice. Are you willing to make that choice, to stand with the only true God of the Bible? We're going to close with John 17, verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. For those who can, may we please kneel for a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we pray that you will give us the courage and the strength, dear Lord, and the faith to come out of that cave and to stand with you once again in your only begotten Son. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for not giving up on us, to look at us as pearls, dear Lord, to show that you truly do love us and want to take us home. Dear Lord, again, please give us the faith, the courage, and the strength to stand with you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.
standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer.